0: You're listening to the Lit Review Podcast. We're your hosts, Paige May and Monica Trinidad. I think it's essential for people to learn together in order to be able to understand what we're up against. We must disrupt.
1: We must disobey. We must agitate. We must escalate. We must break. We must create. We must evolve. She transform, okay. I remember it. She was
0: shocked by my help. In sharing our ideas, we're stronger. Welcome to Chicago,
2: this is home for most. This is the home of the wealthy, make cameos. This is the house of the heartless, the home of the cold. Man, my dog is more acknowledgement than homeless folks. This is the house of generations, caged and naughty home.
1: Hey, everyone. We're here with episode number 45 of The Lit Review, your spark notes for the movement. I'm one of your hosts, Paige May, and thanks for listening. Before we jump into today's conversation, we want to let you know that we've recently launched a Patreon. Patreon helps creators fund their work, and we're asking you to help us sustain this podcast so that we can get the necessary equipment, technical and audio support, and compensate people for their time. If you want to help us sustain this work, please become a monthly Patreon donor today at patreon.com slash the lit review. All contributors get exclusive access to bonus recordings and automatic entry into our annual end-of-year book raffle. We also have cute merch like mugs and bookmarks. And for a limited time only, if you are one of the first 30 people to sign up for a $10 or more monthly donation, we will send you everything. You'll get a full welcome box with all the perks and the merch. Sign up at patreon.com thelitreview the And as always, thanks to our sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership, based out of Kalamazoo College.
0: All right, thanks for mentioning all of that, Paige. So uh, Monica here, and today we're super excited to be here with Chicago-based writer and anti-gentrification activist Linda Lopez. And together we'll be talking about the book, Making the Second Ghetto, Race and Housing in Chicago from 1940 to 1960 uh, by Arnold Hirsch. All right, welcome to the show, Linda. Um, How are you doing today? Um, I'm pretty good today. Thanks for asking. So, um, as always, we start each show by asking our guests to set the stage for us in learning, like, a little bit more about you. Um, so, if you could answer,
2: uh, who are you, what do you do, and why do you do it? Okay. Um, okay, so I'll just give you a little background of myself. So, I am a lifelong Chicagoan. I grew up on the north side, uh, West Humboldt Park and Hermosa area, so west of Logan Square, Um And I went to high school in Beaumont Cregan, so a lot of my roots are, like, northwest side of the city. I went to college at the University of Chicago, um, which is kind of, like, where I started to become interested in, like, housing and gentrification. Um, And right now, so I'm a writer for a website called Streets Blog Chicago, and I focus on transit equity and also displacement, housing, community development, um, I'm also, I've also done work with uh, local community groups around um, gentrification housing, like the Logan Square Neighborhood Association, um, more recently the Pilsen Alliance, because um, now I'm living in Little Village. Um, so, yeah, I'm o- I always approach the work that I do through an anti-displacement lens, and I think a lot of the reasons I got interested in this work is um, based on where I grew up, and even though, like, where I grew up and where my family lives now, it, it's not gentrifying it's adjacent to all these different gentrifying areas um and where i went to school as well like if i compare hyde park from when i started college in 2010 to what like where it is now in 2018 it's just vastly different 53rd street is pretty unrecognizable um and i didn't grow up there so i don't have that long context um but i can imagine just people that uh, grew up in Hyde Park and the changes that have been there. So I think a lot of a lot of my interest in this area has been through life experience and um, and just also my interest in writing. So I think those two intersections just uh, worked for me. The book we're
1: talking about today, Making the Second Ghetto, by Arnold Hirsch. It was actually released in 1983, so it's not a new book. What led you to read it?
2: Yeah, I think. I think particularly after college, so I moved back home to Hermosa, and I think I had a lot of questions that lingered from being in school, like around like gentrification and what's happening uh, on the South Side. What was the University of Chicago doing? But I was all, but I was not living there anymore, and I came back home, and I I saw a lot of escalating work around gentrification in Logan Square um, when so I ran a graduate in 2014. Um, I mean, right now it's been four four years later, and there's been a lot of changes that have happened since then. A lot of the towers you see on Milwaukee Avenue near low, like California and Milwaukee didn't exist yet. Like, um, those are relatively new, so a lot of things were like um, still in transition. And um, so I started to like want to know more about the history. Um, so I started to look at. Uh, books around uh, like housing um, just like different history books I started reading more about like Humboldt Park and upon googling this one came up a couple times and I remember picking it up the first time and I I gave up pretty quickly it's a very dense book (laughs) Um, but I I, I returned to it and you kind of have to be committed to it but once you give it a try it's it's a very, um, it's a very impactful book. And it will give you a history lesson in housing, like, um, unlike most other books that I've seen uh, about Chicago. So I think it was just like being back in a place that um, I think demanded for me to understand more context, because um, nothing happens in like a vacuum, like, everything's like historical, like, uh, everything's kind of based on things that happened in the past. So I just kind of wanted to understand, okay, what's what's happening now? What is this? called gentrification housing affordable housing all these terms that um i think were relatively new to me like a lot of this is jargon like you might under you might see a process but that doesn't mean you have the language in which the dominant culture talks about it um so a lot of these terms were um like relatively new for me so it was kind of just i was just seeking to un- i would say seeking a language for a conversation that i was trying to be a part of so actually on our last uh
0: podcast episode with Daniel uh, Hertz who uh, wrote The Battle of Lincoln Park. Um, we talked about definitions of gentrification and urban renewal um, and sort of got his idea or his definition of that. Do you want to quickly give a definition um, that, you, that you embody around what is gentrification in Chicago and what is um, urban renewal? Like what are the differences in those two pieces?
2: Yeah, yeah gentrification Everyone has a different idea about what it is. Um, I think at the root of it is um uh, the replacement of I would say predominantly people of color by um new wealthier people, usually white. So that's kind of like at the root of it, I would say the basis of the definition. Um I think there's a lot of other more nuanced ideas that go along with gentrification. Um, like the feelings of being unwelcome, like new cafes, like In the neighborhood and when you walk in are you are you do you feel like you fit in are you part of it those are i think like kind of nuanced things about gentrification like i would say just the idea of like a message that you get that you're not welcome in a space anymore so beyond like the replacement of housing and people um i would say it's like just the changing culture of a place um in a way that even if even if you can still live there you're sending a message that these places aren't for you anymore. So I would say that's that's a dominant thing I like to think about too um, in regards to gentrification. Because I I think I'm in a place where I could still like afford to live in some of these spaces, but I mean I'm def I'm definitely in a place where I'm already starting to feel like like an outsider in cer- certain spaces. And I and I know I have a more privileged position, so I could only imagine like longtime families of like say Little Village and Pilson how they feel going to some of these places um so yeah so, so that's my definition of gentrification and in regards to urban renewal um I mean I, I see it as a term of I would say I mean like urban renewal is kind of based on this idea of like like replacement of blight um and I think the city's always kind of gotten an opportunity to define what that is <laughs> and <laughs> I would say in kind of shady terms uh, and I mean like um, I, I know TIF is one of those things that like um what's it what does it stand for, tax increment financing, and they use it in a way to um, collect public public dollars for areas that are blighted. Um, and I think that's kind of I I see that the same idea of like urban renewal, like how do you um, get rid of some things in order to for it to be replaced by um, by new things that might potentially be serving another class of people. Um, And I always go back to that building a new Chicago, like, model, which I really hate. Whenever I see it, I'm like, ah. (laughs) It's like, uh, ah, for who?
1: (laughs) So this book, my understanding is that um, we're going to learn a lot about how Chicago sort of built and maintained its segregation and how that is a model for sort of national policy from that moment on, but that there's a lot of these words that we're gonna be using in sort of um, places and landscapes that are gonna be talked about that maybe people don't know of. So we wanted to, before you dive into the history that's outlined here, ask if you could just clarify for us um, there are three things that we thought of up front. So, the first is the Black Belt. What is that? Where is that? The Great Migration. And then also, just the title of the book, What is the Second Ghetto? What is that referring to?
2: So, the Black Belt refers to a certain part of the city. And I, so it's referring to where like black people became concentrated in the city of Chicago, which sort of like expanded over time. And right now, like people would probably say the Black Belt is a, a large expanse of the South Side. And, and so, when I mean, I guess when people talk about the Black Belt, like where where did Black people become concentrated over time in Chicago? So that's that's the first term. The Great Migration is um, referring to the movement of Black people to Chicago, and there was a couple migrations that happened after World War II. There was another Great Migration to Chicago, so you saw an increase of the Black population in Chicago from like 1920 to the 1960s. I think the I think the number was ten times as many um black Chicagoans in the nineteen sixties as there were in nineteen twenty so you saw a large increase of the population um during those decades um so that's that's the term um the great migration, and the third one was the second ghetto um so I'll read a passage later, but so th- and i I didn't fully understand what this meant at first, um but the author um I think with the term making the second ghetto, he wants to kind of underline what it meant for an increasing black population in Chicago in terms of where they settled and how they came to settle there. So after World War II, there came to be an increase of the black population in Chicago um, and how did they come to settle in certain parts and how did that second, quote-unquote, second ghetto become created um, and what led to it, what policies, um, individual acts of hatred, um, and how did like city institutions also lead to um, that concentration of, quote-unquote, the second ghetto? So the
0: author of this book asserts that Chicago was sort of an architect or like a pioneer of I- like very intentional concepts and devices um, that ensured racial segregation and housing in the 1940s. Can you explain and dive into what these concepts and devices are um, and that the author is talking about?
2: So there's a few things that I mean, I I think Chicago pioneered, um, and and it's not like other cities didn't adopt them as well, but you saw the usage of racial covenants that kept a lot of people out of certain neighborhoods, um, and also city institutions that were not committed to um, creating diverse neighborhoods, and I think the Chicago Housing Authority always... Um, kind of becomes a player in this conversation and i think that i honestly think the leadership at its inception really wanted to create a diverse like or i think yeah wanted to explore what would it what would it mean to have diverse affordable housing throughout the city i think elizabeth wood is is one player that people bring up and she she definitely strikes me as somebody that wanted to um try to create affordable housing that would be inclusive but i think there was a lot of players that um weren't committed in that idea elected officials um in addition to other institutions citywide and also like white chicagoans that weren't into this idea of like uh sharing neighborhoods with um black people um so i think that coupled with all those different things it, it created environments where i mean black people were just kind of shut out of certain communities and in a in a really div- in a really like harsh divisive manner um so, yeah, so, th- so there's some of the ways that you saw that play out in Chicago. So, I'm wondering if we
1: can. Um, I, I mean, it's it, it's a academic book, is my understanding. It's very dense, um, and it's not small. <laughs> so, there's a lot of information. I'm wondering if you can, uh, you know go more in on on what is is told here by Hirsch. Uh, So uh, imagining you know a black family is coming from the south you know fleeing racial terror uh moving to the north Chicago other places throughout the north right through the great migration what happens like you get here and what so you it's the black belt why do you go to the black belt like why can't you go elsewhere what are some of the stories and histories that are outlined about things that people experienced that kept them either on in the black belt or I believe this book talks about the west side and how that Emerges. can you go a little bit more in detail about what that felt like and what that looked like for folks
2: yeah I think honestly one of the most striking pieces of the book or one of the striking chapters I forget the title but um, it talked a lot about like um, how white people um, approached black people moving into these neighborhoods which um, came to be some really striking stories like I think um, a lot of the times where we don't really know these histories and I think I think this book also taught me it was very intentional for us not to know those histories I know Mayor Mayor Daley, I believe at the time, um, like fa- the father Daley intentionally kept a lot of these stories out of the media. So a lot of these like white um, white riots never made it to the newspapers. Um, they they kind of stayed internal. So I so there was a chapter that talked a lot about like how like mobs of white people would. Um, Um, Greek black people trying to move in, and I think one of the biggest ones was in Cicero, Illinois, which is now it's a predominantly Mexican suburb. Which that was really surprising to even think about it being a uh, majority white suburb. But they show a story of a black family I can't remember if it was a doctor, but yeah, so a black family moves into this apartment building, and this leads to thousands of people um, like just like a mob of people basically telling them that you can't live here and i know like they were greeted it was like police officers also trying to like slow down the mob um and just like just like these vivid images of white people that didn't want black people to live there and it was not like i was naive like it was just i'd never heard those stories um like i would say told in a like kind of like in a detailed manner and i don't know it was it was just a really striking story for me and also j- so there's also stories about other parts of the South Side where I believe the Chicago Housing Authority tried to um, create affordable housing, which would include bl- black war veterans. Um, so this is also kind of like, I guess you have these du- just opposing ideas of like, so you have like a black person, but also a war veteran. So I think also appeals to, I would say, some of uh, like white sense, sense, uh Tend to mess around like patriotism, but they were also um, not welcome. I think it was it was maybe the airport homes, I believe, and on the south side where um, black m- veterans were going to move in, but also. Um, led to w- riots by uh, white families and, and and the picture shows some some images of people i think throwing i think rocks at them or or just like different ways of making them feel unwelcome so it was like really striking um to see those images and and it wasn't not that i was naive but it was uh it's another thing to see pictures of like those things in in the and not to say 1960s were uh i would say a beacon <laughs> But it it was it was a striking part of the book, I would say.
1: And so you mentioned that um what's happening here, the main the main uh construction of segregation in Chicago is happening by these individual, right, like white people and uh acting as white people, as regular folks, right? But that there was also governmental sort of policy wi- uh processes for maintaining the segregation that was taking place do you can you talk more about what those specific policies were
2: i think a really big part of it was just like where the city decided where affordable housing was going to be um brought in i think the city had an opportunity during like i mean the mid-20th century to figure out how do we how do we bring affordable housing into into places where we're going to have a diverse group of people but they didn't do that they decided to they decided to locate affordable housing in a way that it was going to be majority black. I mean, that's right. You had the State Street Corridor, uh, Robert Taylor Homes, where it became majority of black developments. Um, so I, thi- I think that was a key part of segregation, just where government decided to put all these different um, affordable housing, uh, public housing developments in the city of Chicago, where I think that could have been a really key opportunity to potentially um, slow down segregation or make it less extreme than it became. And I think it was also uh, a way of appealing to like white sentiments um, that didn't want... Um, black Chicago and so I think I think I see a major part of policy happening is honestly like the placement of affordable housing um, during that time and I think urban renewal was also a big part of it there's a chapter that talks about um, the University of Chicago and it's also uh, how it became a really big player and um, or quote-unquote maintaining the or the south side as in their their south side I guess. I mean, I, I always felt weird saying I lived on the south side because Hyde Park is kind of a very particular part of the south side. Um, that's, I would say, been very much maintained in a certain way by the University of Chicago's influence. So I think urban renewal was also a big part of it. Um, the University of Chicago was very afraid of how there was an impending, I would say, impending quote-unquote black ghetto or black population into Hyde Park. Uh, which is a big concern for um, I would say it's majority white student body, um, so this urban renewal um, act was passed and it allowed uh, the university to raise thousands of homes throughout the community. Um, and I don't I I didn't grow up in Hyde Park, but you hear stories of like how 55th Street used to have all these different like. Jazz clubs, or like I, I don't know, you hear like kind of stories of like 63rd Street too, and how it kind of used to be more of a bustling corridor. Which is, I think, it's also layers of of different history beyond just urban renewal. But I think that's definitely a part of it. Like, how did the University of Chicago use uh, government policy to basically rec- recreate a community and maintain segregation on the south side? And I think, honestly, very irresponsible way for a institution to act cuz I think the University of Chicago has it's one of the richest uh universities in the country in the world and it used its influence to basically maintain segregation um on the south side rather than um trying to find a way in which it could potentially have created avenues for um for its for it potentially slowing down or not have become as embedded as it was um so I would say that was another big piece of it, like how th- how was urban renewal used on the south side and also in Lincoln Park, which um, you mentioned Daniel's book too, and I'm sure he mentioned in his book um, how that was used in that part of the city. And, and Lincoln Park was also um, – also had po- uh, like a Puerto Rican population that was also displaced, and that's part of the reason why um, Humble Park became a, a Puerto Rican enclave too.
0: Okay, so to summarize, sort of what all of the things you're talking about in this book, it seems like uh, making the second ghetto really focuses in on Chicago's south side as being a site of, uh, you know, segregation and like, but a very intentional segregation and in policies that are created that sort of influence a lot of national policies, like uh, in different cities that are. Um, you know, enforcing segregation. Um, So, and and also that it involved a combination of both, like, individual vigilante, sort of uh, white violence and racial conflict, and the the governmental policies that sort of were in place, right? So, you know, thinking about urban renewal, thinking about uh, eminent domain, thinking about all of those redlining, right? Like, I don't know how much this book talks about redlining, but that's something that I think about a lot when I think of um, these forced sort of policies, right? Of the intentional, like, Uh, this intentional taking away or denying of financial opportunities to live in a specific neighborhood, right? Very arbitrarily defining like who gets the money and who doesn't, right? And it's always going to be it was always the white, you know, uh, middle-class uh, people that were getting uh, financial assistance for housing versus, like, poor, you know, black people. Um, but you mentioned University of Chicago, so let's let's dive into more about University of Chicago, right? Because th- it seems like that's a central piece of this book, right?
2: Yeah, um, yeah, so there's a whole chapter on, like, uh, the University of Chicago. I think it's called A City on a Hill, Um forget. But it really focuses in on how different players throughout the city um, played a role in surrogating um, and it does focus very much on the south side because um, I think that's where you see the black belt um, expanding um, throughout the course of uh, the mid 20th century in Chicago so in terms of the University is Chicago it focuses on how like the president of the university and other players in the community um, like formed committees in order to explore okay how to like how do we want to maintain the community, um, and eventually having enough like um, cloud in order to pass like legislation that um, allowed the allowed the community the university to be able to access funds to like basically demolish thousands of home, thousands of homes in the neighborhood. And I don't know if it dives it dives as deeply into um, discussing where all those people went because I don't even know like how you could fully track that. It's kind of like the same idea of like. Um, where did all the people um, go when the public housing projects were all demolished throughout the south side? Where did all those people go? Um, it's really hard to say like where they all went, but yeah. The, so the author kind of focuses in on like how those all those how, uh, buildings were demolished and how that kind of led to the unir- university being able to, to like effectively shut out different people from the south side and also kind of creating pressures for other communities that were in Hyde Park to I would say be being receiving uh, neighborhoods for all those people that could no longer live in in Hyde Park so I think it's really important to look at the University of Chicago on the south side um, especially since it's is it is it the major, the biggest employer on the south side? Is not if one of the biggest. So I think it's really important to see who are like the major players and still are the major players. Like and I, that's why I like to s- say s- I mean see the university as kind of like a continual actor because I think urban renewal was part of it, but you see it's still playing a big role today. Like you see the. Obama Library probably wouldn't be a thing if it wasn't for the university in Hyde Park. Like they wanted it there, um, and there's still no community benefits agreement with the c- which the community is pushing for, which potentially ensure that. Community gets more benefits from this library, but that's just a continual kind of like continual like displacement and gentrification and and what we've seen on fifty third street so it's kind of like I would say what's happening and what happened is kind of like continual legacy of of what the university wants the neighborhood to be kind of like a hub for students and a hub for like young professionals rather than like for people that have lived there and i ha- think fifty third street is a good testament of that, <laughs> just like the hyatt target like it's just amazing. So I think it's very compelling to read the University of Chicago's chapter because like it gives you really good context then about what's continuing to happening today and how much they own. I would say how much they own of this of like the South Side. Like uh, it's kind of grappling how like one institution can um, have such a big hold and and for me it also informed my. My way of looking at other parts of the city and h- how big universities play a role, like, and I know you mentioned Lincoln Park earlier. Thinking about DePaul's role and like also gentrifying Lincoln Park. Um, thinking about like Loyola's role in like Rogers Park. Like, what are they pushing up there? Like, I know there's in conversation about Target up there. So I think it's really important if you care about like housing and development to take a look at higher education institutions because they have like a lot of power. A lot of power in in the city.
0: Do you see the same effects of what you are seeing with the University of Chicago and Hyde Park? Do you see the same sort of effects by the University of Illinois at Chicago and the effects on the Pilsen neighborhood? Like, is it is it different, or is
2: it, or do you see similarities? That's a good question. Um, I mean, the whole history of the University of Illinois it was it was built after neighborhoods were raised. <laughs> So I mean, there's definitely s- there's a really key component um, there that they were basically built upon, like displaced people's homes, um, and re- they really had no like voice. Like, I mean, as in like, I mean, they had a voice, but nobody really cared to listen. Um, and people fought, and and this is to say like we shouldn't have universities. Um, it's more of like how do you bring about them in a responsible manner? Because uh, I think I mean, obviously higher education, there's like it's a worthy. Uh, those are it's a worthy endeavors. <laughs> but I don't know. I think it's do they have to be like, and I don't know do they have to come forth in such a responsible manners? Uh, I don't think so. I and I don't I'm not like a planner or, or a tech, but <laughs> I don't think we necessarily have to displace people to get an education. Uh, so that's 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 always strange. So UIC also has like a really contentious history. Which I get the sense that they're less they're more willing to grapple with that contentious history, like I think it seems people are a little more open on that campus like I have interacted with professors and students that there seems to be like more open um Conversation about that history, and I and at the Latino Cultural Center actually has a mural where it's sort of a bull, like a bulldozer, I think, which I think alludes to like that history, which I think would be, I could never imagine ufc allowing any kind of like mural about urban renewal on campus. <laughs> yeah, UIC's history is tricky, and I think it, it it I think it has played a central role in like gentrification in Pilsen. Like, there's a really huge young population in Pilsen, that's why it gives you a feeling of a college town sometimes because there's just a large concentration of young people and 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 UIC's right there a large public university so a lot of students a lot of students just get like an apartment in Pilsen one or two years and that's it uh, and then they leave so it's temporary people in these neighborhoods but that's already kind of changed the housing dynamic in the neighborhood um and you also have the medical district the UIC uh hospital so you have medical students also like accessing housing maybe off Damon or Western which is closer to the medical district so UIC has a very very big part to play and i know they i know like the urban planning um school is like i know a lot of like students have done research on like displacement and gentrification in the neighborhood and there's some some really solid studies and I, I i think there's still a lot of work to be done cuz i think the university has played a big role in like development of of like Pilsen and University Village because it's really undeniable like how it's how it's uh it's i would say its student population has changed the has helped change the um, demographic makeup of the neighborhood.
1: Yeah, um I I made that face about the university in art cuz like they've uh they bought up um you know a lot more properties than we can even track because they have different sort of companies and processes for how they buy properties that make it really hard to track how much they actually own. Uh, But in Washington Park, right, they've bought up uh, much of Garfield Boulevard um, and have turned it into the arts block. So there's like now this art gallery and an arts incubator. And then um, they just opened up this like performing line. and, And I go to my neighborhood meetings and folks had to beg for tickets right neighbors like that live there um and had to ask repeatedly like can we get tickets to the opening um and i uh, the one young person that we had that went uh texted me and was like can you get me can you pick me up now it's just a bunch of white people drinking champagne (laughs) like and i was like okay um but they have inside all these home videos that of of the neighborhood that people gave them from the community and the community members that i've talked to they were like yeah yeah and they won't give us back like our original footage like Anyway, it's just, it's ridiculous, right? The ways that um, the university has created this, like, literal block of art and uses that as a way to get people into the neighborhood. And then if you, you know, the cross street that where it intersects on Prairie, they also own property, and there's, like, a huge hub of folks that are now buying up homes there. And I bring all this up because it's this the very interesting pattern, um, it seems, of, of how you have, um, you know, folks at all levels of the system, you know, creating hostile environments for poor people, for people of color, for black people, right? So, like, the university, before they started buying up all those properties, had their police force in the neighborhood, right? Um, and then this process of, like, tearing things down. Where I mean, th- this neighborhood, this is where Lorraine Hansberry lives, and she writes, A Raisin in the Sun is based off of Washington Park. It's in the heart of the Black Belt. And you go there now, and it has some of the highest rates of vacant lots in the city. Um, and, now, and now you have these you know, private forces that absolutely work together with the government, right? They're the ones, through the zoning departments, um, through, uh, you know, through codes and violations and permits and tickets, they're able to push people out as a private institution like the university. But... Uh, And through governmental mechanisms that regular community members don't have access to, right? I have a neighbor who's been trying for a year to get a streetlight turned on. Like she keeps calling and keeps calling. If the university does that, the Um, streetlight. And and I think that's what's—it's really interesting the ways these things come together of of like private institutions, government governmental policies and practices, and regular, particularly white folks and elite folks, um, to create. Unwelcoming, literally like unlivable for certain groups of people. Um, but what we know, but the black belt, right? You have, I mean, at the, for in the South, you have inc- like lynching. Thousands of people are getting lynched. Um, you have convict leasing, so there's mass, the rise, uh, you know, increasing mass incarceration. Um, so much uh, disrespect, lack of dignity, lack of so many reasons to, for that folks are are fleeing and they're coming north. Um, and the black belt, it's it's. Um, what it seems like the city, what they decide to do is they're not trying to right, abolish, quote-unquote, the ghetto. They're trying to actually expand it and keep those people contained. But eventually, like, you run into the university, right? Where it, and it, what happens as that population starts to increase over time? Where, you know, what, where did they go? I think that's where the west side comes in, but I'm curious to hear more about that expansion. What happens as more and more people are fleeing the south? Because there's three waves to the Great Migration. So what happens by the second or third wave? Is it still the black belt on the south side in the area around Hyde Park and further south? Or do new places emerge? What did they do as that population increased?
2: Yeah, I mean, the the, the black population in Chicago increased drastically from the, from the 1920s to 1960s. So you had like, I think it was 10 times as many um black Chicagoans um during those decades um so you see like a large expanse of like the population going through other parts of the city which I think is where the conflict came in you had people kind of pushing to other parts of the city but kind of like white people I mean white people still lived in a lot of these areas like Morgan Park a lot of those parts of the south side um like Gage Park and I mean we see images uh, I think of Martin Martin Luther King I think um I think a rock got thrown at him when he was marching through... was it Mar- uh, Chicago Lawn? Um, so you had a lot of these places that still had a, a predominantly uh, white population. That, um, but you you had black people that were looking for houses, and um, and you and you get all these like stark images of like um, like homes that were kind of subdivided into like multiple apartments because people were like desperate for housing, um, and and desperate people are gonna try to find housing. So that's kind of where you kind of. L- you lead into this conflict of like white people trying to keep them out, um, which kind of led to a lot of the riots. the The book talks about, which is I think is one of the more compelling chapters of the book, seeing how like, I mean, like the black population is trying to expand, but you have like this big push of like white people trying to keep them out. And I and I don't think the book talks about the West Side as heavily, but I, I have read a, I have read about the the West Side in other books. I think Family Properties is a really good book, which talks about how the West Side, and that book talks a lot about North Lawndale and how it used to be um, predominantly Jewish and how um, like black people started moving in and and you kind of have like you kind of hear like and I don't want to say it's like formulaic oh this thing happened and this thing happened but it it sort of has that effect and like black people start start moving in and you have like um, these realtors which sometimes were called uh, block blockbusters I think were called as in like kind of scaring people to sell their homes and which kind of leads to what other people call as white flight, which is kind of like this idea of like white people um, leaving for the suburbs and, and leaving places that, um, and, and which is kind of like well, like a drastic drop in the white population as the black population increased, which is what I think happened in North Lawndale. And in North Lawndale, you have like these institutions, like for example, Sears. Uh, when you go to parts of the South Side, um. And this is when I was first learning about the West Side of Pulaski and Madison. Like, there were some, like, um, really, like, it's kind of all these, I, I hate, like, I, I don't like to, like, rely on nostalgia. But sometimes people, like, that know a lot about the history of Chicago and, like, the West Side, like, they kind of rely on this and stuff. Oh, this used to be kind of, like, bustling and, like, and I don't have these images, but, and, like, sometimes, like, visiting the West Side and, like, knowing people that live there longer talk about, like, oh, this used to kind of be like this, like this, and, um and thinking about the effect when white people left um what why, what institutions left with them, and I think Sears I always think about Sears because that 's like really stark to think about that it, like the headquarters used to be like in north lawnda that 's like pretty huge, and I know like it 's a different story for Sears now, but I mean uh, yeah uh, but then like that's a pretty big deal, so I think it was kind of like a similar story that happened on the West side, like white population that are scared. I partly, partly fear. Partly other things like other actors, like I said, realtors, um, other institutions that also decide to leave, and and government too. Like government invested a lot to expand the suburbs, like so they were also very invested in white people leaving on um, like nation, Like that was a really big part of segregating the city too. Like if the city wouldn't invested in like white people staying, and not to leave white people off the hook necessarily. <laughs> But I mean, it's part of it like government like made it made a big incentive for for you to leave like um and just le- kind of leave the city here which and which kind of brings us to today, which is the opposite now, like the city's really investing in keeping them here and and bringing them back or or bringing more um so it's kind of like this opposite story, which is really interesting now the suburbs are kind of seen as like. I mean, that's suburb- a really interesting story because now you have majority-minority suburbs. Um, Poverty is being, like, concentrated there. So it's, like, the same story in, like, different ways. Like and, and the suburbs, like, even more disinvested, like, outlying suburbs, like, very little transit, like, um, very poor, like, and where are the jobs? Like, so it's kind of, like, it's kind of, like, the same stories. And, I mean, people always find fla- ways to, like, hurt poor people regardless of where they are which is i think is the most stark part of talking about housing and like past chicago and current chicago like it, the city always finds a way to hurt people
0: all right so we're getting close to time um and so i really want to switch gears in here from you um, I mean, it's clear to me that I need to read this book, and I'm already, like, I'm already picking it up and sort of, like, looking at all the different chapters, and, you know, there's a chapter about the loop and the downtown area being, you know, like, redeveloping, and so that's already interesting to me, and I want to read it, but why should other organizers um, and
2: activists read this book? So I honestly think it's, it's been one of the most foundational books about history, like, in terms of housing in Chicago, because um, I think it gives you a really, like, broad look at what's happening on the south side so it's it's very predominantly um focused on the south side but i think what i really like about this book is that it like it like it breaks it down in different ways it talks about like one chapter focused on like basically white people and how they shut black people out of community it talks about the university of chicago it talks about the downtown and what they were invested in um invested in it talks about like um like different policies that that also played a role in like all these different like actors so i don't know if i know of any other books that takes that kind of broad look at chicago uh, i think in a very unapologetic un- unapologetic way like it's not neutral like the author is very much saying like yeah the city like wanted to surrogate and Basically, they did not want black people to live in certain places. So this is what happened. So I really appreciate that, too. Because um, I think you should be really skeptical of authors that are, are neutral about these things. Which I think sometimes is the tone that I get from certain histories. So I think I really enjoy his tone. I think it's, um, I don't know. I I think there's a lot to learn about the history of, like, uh, housing in this book and how it's informing us today. Because, I mean, all these players in this book are still influencing uh like they're still influencing like um chicago today so i think if you're interested in affordable housing or just in general development and university of chicago if you're interested in that history (laughs) i i think it's a very compelling you're a student learn about learn about things you (laughs) i think it's a pretty compelling read yeah in a
1: moment I'll ask you to close this out with your favorite passage uh, but again if you love our podcast if you listen to our podcast and you want it to continue please 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 if you could become a supporter of our work um, again we are setting up a Patreon account so you can co- become a, a sponsor or a funder at patreon.com slash the and Patreon is spelled P-A-T-R-E-O-N we'll have a link along with this and if you become one of the first 30 people to sign up to donate $10 more a month, we'll be sending you our special welcome box full of stickers and buttons and a t-shirt and a mug and all kinds of extra love from from Monica and Paige. Uh, So thanks again for listening, and I'll turn it over to you to close us out. Thank you so much for being a guest.
2: Yeah, thanks so much. I don't usually get to nerd out about housing. (laughs) I feel like I was in school, which is not a bad thing. (laughs) So I'm going to read this. Uh, I was looking for a good passage. There's a lot of good passages, but I... Uh, I'm gonna read one from like, I think it, I believe it's the first chapter, um, and I think it really gives a good explanation about why it's called the Second Ghetto, which I think um, I know that was an initial question that uh, you two had. Um, so I think this one kind of gives a good idea um, I kind of get a good idea of why the author decided to name the book. okay. The reasons for making a distinction between the first ghetto of the World War I era and the second ghetto of the post-World War II era period are quantitative, temporal, and qualitative. As Morris Janowitz noted in his analysis of racial disorders in the 20th century, the commodity riots of the 1960s took place in black communities that had grown enormously in both size and population. Ten times as many blacks lived in Chicago in 1966 as in 1920. Representing but 4% of the city's population in the, la- in the latter year, blacks accounted for nearly 30% of all Chicagoans by the mid-1960s. The evolution of the West Side Black Colony from Enclave to Ghetto was a post-World War II development. And the South Side Black Belt expansion between 1945 and 1960 was so pronounced that its major business artery shifted a full two miles to the south from 47th Street to 63rd. There is a chronological justification for referring to Chicago's second ghetto as well. The period of rapid growth following the World war th- following World War II was the second such period in the city's history. The first, coinciding with the Great Migration of Southern Blacks, encompassed the years between 1890 and 1930. Before 1900, the earliest identifiable Black colony existed west of State Street and south of Harrison. An 1874 fire destroyed much of, the section of this section and resulted in the set settlement's reestablishment between Sunny 2nd and 31st Streets. By the turn of the century, the, this nucleus had merged with other colonies to form the Southside Black Belt, where, according to Thomas Pillipot's meticulously researched the slum and the ghetto, no large, solidly Negro concentration existed in Chicago until the 1890s. By 1900, the black population suffered an extraordinary degree of segregation and their residential confinement was nearly complete. Almost three miles long, but barely a quarter mile ride, Chicago's South Side ghetto, near, neatly circumcised on all sides by railroad tracks, had come into being. <laughs>
1: To another episode of The Lit Review, a podcast where we interview people we love and respect about books for the movement.
0: We are your co hosts, Monica Trinidad and Paige May two Chicago-based organizers.
1: Special shout-out to The Lit Review's very own sponsor, the Arcus Center for Social Justice Leadership out of Kalamazoo College.
0: Keep your eyes and ears open for another episode next Monday, same time, same place.
1: Want to hear about a specific book? Email us at thelitreviewchicago at gmail.com or find us on Facebook.
0: And if you like this episode, give it a shout-out on Twitter or Instagram. Our handle is at litreviewshy. Keep reading!